Texas. Thank you so much. It's so great to be with you. I believe it is, is it the 26th today? Woo, we are almost into May. Time is flying. My name is Julene Jackson. I've been with Moms for America for over a decade where we believe that liberty begins at home within the four walls of our home. Do we nurture this love of freedom and patriotism and our founding fathers and founding mothers and an understanding and reference a reverence for the constitution. And uh, we've got Z in Colorado and Tressie in Texas. They're our, our wonderful uh, Moms for America uh, directors of education. And I'm not getting your titles right here. Anyways, they're, they're important people and I couldn't, I couldn't do it what I do without them. So I just want to acknowledge and thank them for being with us today as well. Let's see that first slide, Tressie. We are on lesson number seven of the 16th class in the series of the Healing of America. It's a 16 week class. We're on number seven. We're almost halfway through uh, this seminar. I hope that you are beginning to connect dots and understand things that maybe have been a mystery up until this point. Today, we're gonna discuss articles four through seven and then the first 10 amendments in the constitution. These are the last thing our founding fathers gave us. We are going to talk about amendments 11 and 12. Our founders gave us 11 and 12, but I kind of attach them sometimes to the Bill of Rights, but we will uh, separate those for next week. But this is kind of the core uh, um, articles one and two, and then three that we studied the last two weeks, and then articles four through seven and amendments one through 10, known as the Bill of Rights. This is what our founding fathers uh, you know, was struck off by the hand of God in that constitutional convention. So let's see that next slide. So we have gone through the first seminar. Each book is four weeks. So I hope you have these books. They're, I think, $50, four for $50. They are my treasures. I wish you could see my books. They're all just marked up and I've taken such notes. I've gone through the seminar probably 10 times. To me, it's like scripture. You can't just go through it one time and think you're going to understand and get it all. And so I have studied these seminars for, oh gosh, probably 10 years. And I started teaching them just about a year or two after I took them. And I really didn't know what I was teaching. But over the course of the 10 years, as you talk and teach about, uh, you know, these principles, these ideas, you begin to feel them and own them. And you can talk about them a little bit more freely, just like scripture. Uh, and so we have gone through that first seminar, which are all those great faith stories of God's hand in establishing America. We are uh, almost, we're halfway through the constitution, I, uh, the Founders Charter of Freedom. So we're on seminar number two, section three today. There's four sections in each one of these booklets. I always say after you finish seminar two, you will know more about the constitution of the United States than uh, most citizens of this country, okay? So I want you to feel empowered. And then if you don't have your booklet already, we're, we're you know, in the next week and a half, we'll be starting on the attacks of the, of the constitution. We have to know how, we, how it got broke to understand how to fix it, which is the fourth uh, seminar, the restoring, the healing uh, of America, the healing of the constitution. And so um, I just love this seminar because it has solutions. So many people nowadays are so good about, you know, highlighting what the problems are and no one really has solutions. And um, that seminar four is my favorite because it's all about solutions. And so let's see the next slide there. Hopefully this acronym, LEGISAR, is just starting to roll off your tongue now. Uh, it, it, it's an uh, acronym that helps 
remind you what the seven articles in the Constitution are. So let's see that next slide. We Two weeks ago, we talked about the legislative branch. That's where the voice of the people is preeminent. It's the, the largest article. And there's 20 enumerated powers that our members of Congress are supposed to work under. And then last week, we talked about the executive branch and the judicial branch. Did you uh, hear that President Biden just announced he's running for re-election yesterday in North Carolina? He put out a little three-minute video announcing his uh, his campaign for re-election. I thought it was interesting how he uh, starts it off with uh, images of January 6th. And then um, he talks about how our, our uh, uh, foundational bedrock principles are under attack by the extremist and how these fundamental principles, which, uh, and then he, he, he notes the fundamental freedoms that are under attack are, are um, abortion and the right to be able to love who you want to love and implying the LGBTQIA plus community. It's interesting on Friday night, I was actually at that uh, Tucker Carlson speech he gave at the Heritage 50th Gala uh, event in Washington DC. And some are saying that's why Tucker Carlson was fired because of that speech that he gave last Friday night, which I will talk more about this in the class tomorrow night at eight o'clock. I'll show you some pictures and talk about that speech. But Tucker Carlson in that speech last Friday in DC said, he, he mentioned the LGBTQIA plus community. And he said, I don't even know what the plus is. Can anyone tell me what that plus means? And my husband who was there with me leaned over and he said, that plus is the silent P, pedophilia because they don't feel like they can say that. And, and they're, they're grooming um, that word. They don't say so much pedophilia anymore, but they say a minor attracted person. And they're grooming the young children to believe with the, the whole idea of wokeism and uh, fluid gender, sexual gender identities of that if you can get a girl to think she's a boy or a boy to think they're a dog, then ageism is the most fluid of that identity. If you can get a 12 year old to feel like she's a 30 year old, then it won't be uh, uh, so bad for her to pair up sexually with a 40 year old. Okay, So do you see how, how they are manipulating the children and that LGBTQIA plus is, no one knows what that plus means, but uh, it, it is, the silent P, which they don't feel like they can come out in public and say yet because that's just not acceptable, but how they're slowly manipulating that plus to mean um, uh, pedophilia. So anyways, and Tucker Carlson uh, just, you know, was, was questioning what is that plus. So I'm just letting you know, moms, just, just so you understand that these are the um, fundamental rights that President Obama used in this three minute clip that are under attack, which is whew, so interesting. He will be 82. If he were to win uh, re-election, he would be 82 and he would be 86 by the time his second term would be over. President Trump, or is this nation ready for another election between former President Trump and President Biden? President Trump, I think is three and a half years younger. So he would be 78 if he were to win in 2024. So, uh, and then um, that third article that we talked about last week uh, was the judiciary. Can I just say Clarence Thomas right now is coming under fire. I don't know if you've been keeping up with that in the news again for ethical transgressions, taking trips with uh, friends who are 
wealthy. Uh, it seems like, you know, uh, it's just nothing short of a witch trial. This man has sat on the bench for over 30 years. And to me, how he's been treated over the course of his life and in his career feels like a, a very racial, racist mistreatment uh, to me. In fact, um, uh, Stephen Breyer, who was the justice that sat next to him on the bench for 28 years now, Justice Breyer was appointed by President Clinton. So Justice Breyer and Justice Thomas shared opposite uh, political views, but Justice Breyer just five days ago, and he stepped down and Katanji Brown was put in his place. But Justice Breyer just a few days ago spoke up in defense of uh, Justice Thomas and said, I have sat, I sat next to him for 28 years on the bench. He is a man of integrity. I've never seen him do anything underhanded. And now can you imagine the backlash that is occurring uh, against Stephen Breyer, Justice Breyer, for standing up and defending um, Justice Thomas that he sat next to on the bench for almost 30 years. So interesting, interesting things going on in these branches of the government. Okay, so let's see that next slide. So today we're going to discuss the last four articles of the constitution. So that states rights. Oh, and I just wanna tell you, there's the most beautiful documentary that came out three years ago. Uh, on Clarence Thomas's life. It's called Created Equal, Clarence Thomas in his own words. And uh, a link to that can be found in our chat. I tried to watch it last year on Amazon. It was during Black History Month and Amazon was not offering it there. I, I, I mean, they, they had scores of black movies during Black History Month last year. I, I mean, there was, it was called Black Love, Black Joy, Black Girl Magic. There was documentaries on Thorough, uh, Thorough uh, Marshall, uh, documentaries on RBJ in the movie, but he was nowhere to be found. I think I ended up watching it on 2B TV. You can watch it for free. Just put it in your uh, Google chat. It's, it's about an hour and a half. And he, he, is, he, he rarely gives interviews. He's a very private man, but he, he speaks a lot. He tells about his childhood. I remember weeping at one point. I was just uh, so inspired by his life story. And so I would put that on your bucket list of uh, movie nights, Friday night movies. It's so in, in, inspirational, created equal. It was produced in 2023, just a few years ago. Okay, let's see the next slide. So we're going to uh, discuss the, the last four amendments, states' rights, how to amend the constitution, uh, what is the supreme uh, law of the land called the supremacy clause, that's article six, and then ratification, what it was gonna take to ratify this constitution. And then we will discuss the first 10 amendments today. Woo. Okay, strap in dear ladies. Um, also, let's see the next slide. It, 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 kind of the cliff notes of what we talk about in the constitution class can be contained in this one page outline of the constitution. So please ladies, print this off, print off 10 of them, put them in your books and in your purses, because it'll give you a working organization of these, uh, how to simply explain uh, what the seven articles are and what the 27 amendments are. Let's see that next slide. And then if you always need clarification as we're zipping through here, this is a wonderful book. I think it's about $30, The Making of America. It goes line by line what the founding fathers intended and, and also very good explanation of what came since our founding fathers. And it goes closely along with this Healing of America seminar 
uh, Cleon Skousen wrote this book as well. And so I would really recommend this as a great resource to, to really understand what our founders intended when they put in certain lines in the constitution. Okay, let's see that next slide. So we're on article four talks about uh, the relationships between the states. Now, remember when we first became a nation, our states were treating each other like they were uh, foreign powers, you know, acting very independently. And so under Article 4, the founders wanted to solve some of those problems that had risen amongst the original 13 uh, uh, states. And they also, the founders wanted to cover additional problems that might arise as new states were going to come into the union. So there's four sections in this article four. Uh, and the first section talks about how the official acts of each state must be received with full faith and credit by all the states. And section two says the citizens of each state shall be in entitled to all privileges and immunities of citizens in several states. So the privileges and immunities refer to the natural rights of citizens to be able to uh, travel between different states and to set up businesses and to you know, access uh, the courts. And, and also it, it in, in included, and those privileges and immunities meant the, the natural rights to the citizen. And, and not to be um, confused with acquired rights of citizens of each state. Now, the difference between a natural uh, right, kind of a God-given right, and an acquired right is, an acquired right is the advantage that you have as a citizen of a particular state, that maybe you pay uh, additional taxes, so you get uh, uh, special dispensations, like, you know, reduced uh, tuition for in-state colleges or, uh, fees that might be charged, fishing fees or, or for licenses for out of state uh, people coming into your state to, uh, you know, to use some of your natural resources. So these acquired rights uh, included state licensing that needed to be approved uh, by other states. So, so they would recognize the licensings from one state to the other. And that would entail maybe respecting each other's um, legal decisions or uh, driver's license licenses or marriage marriage uh, certificates or uh, divorces, that kind of thing, concealed weapon permits. Acquired rights, now take note of this, the acquired rights in certain states do not include actions that a particular another state might uh, deem as illegal or inappropriate, all right? So some states might legalize gambling or same-sex marriage or plural marriage or prostitution and that means that it didn't necessarily, that acquired right didn't have to be recognized in, an, in another state where they deemed that activity illegal. So up until this point, uh, inalienable or those natural rights versus acquired uh, rights or privileges from living in certain states, there was a difference. So uh, up until, until uh, about 2000, the gay marriage was considered not a natural right, that could be recognized among states, but an acquired right. So the licensing of uh, same-sex marriage was up to the individual states. Now that was going to be overruled in 2013 by the Supreme Court. But at this point, remember in 1996 when Congress passed a DOMA, DOMA, the Defense of Marriage uh, Act, and I think that they were starting to see that more states were recognizing same-sex unions. And so Congress passed this DOMA that 
that said marriage was going to be between a man and a woman in 1996. And this was passed when President Clinton was the president. And interesting enough, President Biden, who was a senator from Delaware in 1996, voted for DOMA, uh, that marriage was between a man and a woman. And he, he, uh, under, uh, uh, he would actually repeal that last year under the uh, Marriage, Marriage Act. Um, what, what exactly is the name of that? I wrote that down somewhere. The Marriage Act in, in last year in 2022, President <laughs> uh, Biden repealed something he voted for in 1996. The problem with with uh, codifying an inalienable God-given right that marriage is between a man and a woman. Now, God tells us that, that's, that's you know natural law. When you try and codify natural law, you open it up to the courts to redefine that right. And that is exactly what happened. The Supreme Court, someone uh, took DOMA to the Supreme Court, said it was unconstitutional. So now you have the justices looking and now wanting to redefine what God has already spoken on in, in uh, Holy, Holy Writ, that marriage is between a man and a woman. So this issue began to get sticky in 2004 when Massachusetts performed the first gay marriage and other states began to push back because what was happening was you would go and you know have a same-sex marriage performed in Massachusetts, then you would move to Ohio where gay marriage is not recognized and, and that couple's marriage was not binding. And so that's where there began to be problems. And so uh, the controversy was ended nine years later from 2004, when the first uh, same-sex marriage took place, nine years later, the Supreme Court legalized gay marriage. It was a 5-4 decision, and they cited the Fifth Amendment and the 14th Amendment under the Equal Protection Clause. We will talk about the 14th Amendment next week, but the 14th Amendment uh, uh, is what gave Black citizens the, the equal protection to all the rights and privileges of a white citizen. So it, it took place after the Civil War. And the court spun that equal protection clause and also the due process clause in Amendment 5 to make it mean that we're depriving people uh, of, of equal protection of the law of being able to be married. And so um, that, that was the rule of law that they used and they distorted quite truthfully uh, those two clauses. And so we can see uh, when gay marriage was the, the courts legislated from the bench now redefining uh, the natural law in 2004 uh, or no 2013, what that has done, how that has opened the floodgates in the last 10 years from 2013 to 2023, and how uh, you know we have the Equality Act that was not passed in the Senate, but the president, because the Equality Act and the Equality Act protects discrimination from sexual orientation or gender identity. So it protects transgenderism. So what President Biden did is he passed an executive order bypassing Congress uh, uh, in, in support of the Equality Act. So he wrote an executive Equality Act order 
which you'll see, <laughs> we'll talk about in just a little bit, is completely against, uh, you know, what the Constitution uh, said he can do uh, in his six enumerated powers. And we'll, we'll talk about uh, this in just a moment. And not to mention the impact of um, same-sex marriage on uh, women and children and religion. And now we see, you know, all the transgender um, men participating and really ruining women's sports and bathrooms now are genderless and how that could be a dangerous thing for our young girls to be in bathrooms with grown men and, and, uh, and how it's even trickled down into the states now last week Washington is now saying they can, state of Washington can take children away from their parents if the parents don't honor the wishes of the child to have sex changes. And so you can see as we veered away from the original intent of God's law and, and start to, to um, codify these laws and redefine God's laws, the havoc that is taking place in our country and we're seeing it right before our eyes. And some of it got its rooting in uh, the misunderstanding or the misinterpretation of um, Article 4 and Amendments 5 and, and uh, 14 that we'll talk about. Okay, so let's turn the page. That, that, that was a chunk to have to explain. And I wanted to spend some time on that because that's applicable to some of the moral decay that we're seeing in our country now. How... Uh, how how we got to that point and how the courts had um, their hands all over it and were involved in, in, in uh, you know protecting this um, this ungodly <laughs> behavior that is contrary to the natural laws that our country was founded on. All right, and we'll talk about that in a moment as well. So in Article 4, Section 3, in the, uh, the Northwest Ordinance, you'll hear me talking about the Northwest Ordinance. This is the same year that the Constitution uh, was written, that the Northwest Ordinance talks about these new states that were going to come in to the Union and, uh, and how they were to come in on equal footing and how that has not been the case because the Western states, the federal government owns, 50, 60% of some of the Western states uh, land. And this is uh, not in keeping with the Northwest Ordinance and not in keeping with uh, Article 1, Section 8, we talked about um, two weeks ago. And it's, uh, you know, talked about again that they wanted, you know, all states to be able to own their resources and their land. And that's certainly not the case with some of these Western states where, uh, you know, Alaska and Nevada and you know, Utah and Wyoming and, uh, you know, 60, 70% of the state is owned by the federal government. Okay, let's go to the next slide. Article um, five talks about how to amend the constitution. I would really like to recommend, oh, if this could be your homework assignment to watch these two YouTube videos, part one and part two, one is eight minutes, one is nine minutes called the tale of two constitutions. What our founding fathers gave us, and as we have added different amendments uh, through the years, how it has changed uh, the original constitution. You have to understand for every amendment that came after our founding fathers, that's amendment 13 up to 27, 
every amendment passed supersedes parts of the original constitution, all right? And so, and when you supersede what our founding fathers give us, then we begin to move away from what made us so strong the first hundred years when we had such great success living under these principles. So our founding fathers understood that they had made a mistake when, uh, when they first uh, specified in the Articles of Confederation, remember that kind of first week little constitution, so to speak, where they said that, it had to be unanimous before they could ever change the constitution. So um, when they put in how to amend the constitution under uh, the constitution they, that was written in 1787, they said there's two ways to amend the constitution. The first one is uh, by two thirds of the house and the Senate voting for a new amendment. And then it has to be approved by three fourths of the state legislatures, okay? And the second way you can amend the constitution which has never really been done before. Although some people think our first constitutional convention was a con-con, but it, it wasn't quite. The second way that the founders put in force to be able to change the constitution is to have um, two thirds of the state legislatures petition Congress uh, for the constitution and have a, a state, uh, uh, state convention of these two thirds of these states gathered together and they would have to file an application stating their intention and it would have to be specific what they were going to address they just couldn't come in and overthrow the constitution some people are very afraid of this form of um of amending the constitution this constitutional con con constitutional convention of the states i i we've never seen it happen before but in a way it's it's the way that people can regain control of their affairs without having to go through Washington DC Congress or the president. Now Congress is it does not like it and is always very anxious to want to prevent uh, a constitutional convention of two thirds of the states coming together because what it does is it decreases their, their power. So whenever there's almost been enough two thirds of the states to petition for a convention, Congress usually capitulates and, and, and passes the amendment. And that's what happened in the 17th amendment, which turned out to be such an egregious amendment, but that's how we could possibly uh, um, uh, repeal the 17th amendment would be through a constitutional convention of the states, okay? Okay, and, and keep in mind when there's that constitutional convention of the states, three fourths of the state legislatures have to approve what came out of that constitutional convention. So there's a lot of checks on what could potentially uh, be changed in the constitution. So they didn't make it, they didn't make it easy to change the constitution, but they did provide another way uh, to change it if Congress and president and president wasn't going to cooperate. Okay, let's see the next slide. Article number seven talks about what is going to be the supreme law of the land. Okay, the first section talks about how we're going to, and, and there's that amending process slide. We'll just move on. Let's, let's move on to the next slide, Tressie. So Article 6 talks about uh, what's going to be the supreme law of the land. Well, it's going to be three things. It's going to be the Constitution. It's going to be the laws established by the federal government pursuant to the provisions set forth in the Constitution. Okay, so the statutes that come forth out of Congress, that's what they mean by the laws established by the federal government. 
and then treaties that are entered into by the United States where remember treaties um, uh, are, cannot be passed unless two thirds of the Senate uh, sign off on the treaty that is initiated by the president. So nowhere in this article six is there a reference to executive orders that are, are put forth under the executive branch, branch by the president or it does it say edicts from regulatory agencies that were just supposed to be put forth to govern the executive branch. And nowhere does it talk about edicts from the Supreme Court are supposed to constitute, uh, are supposed to uh, constitute legislation. So you can see that they were trying to be very clear here. This is the supreme law of the land, not executive orders, not uh, legislation passed down from the courts, not regulatory. We saw this during COVID, a lot of regulatory agencies were passing laws for the country. We just saw uh, last week the, the Supreme Court declare that the birth control pill is still legal. They made that legal nationally. This is, these, this is not supreme laws of the land. Supreme law of the land is the constitution, the statutes that are enacted by Congress are representatives who we have voted in to represent us and treaties. Okay, so you can see some of the laws that are coming forth uh, by way executive agreements with other countries or executive orders by the executive branch or the Supreme Court are not the supreme law of the land. And my, you could push back and say, <laughs> I, I, it doesn't trump the, you know, the constitution. That's why we have to know the constitution, all right? Okay, so let's move on to Article 7. What did it take to ratify the Constitution? Our founder said it was going to take nine out of the 13 states to approve this Constitution for it to be ratified and to go into law. So it was ratified one year after it was written, and the president was sworn in. 11 of the states uh, voted for it, and then ultimately North Carolina and uh, Rhode Island were the last holdouts, but they Joined, uh, uh, joined the union and agreed to, uh, voted for the constitution uh, rights um, after President Washington was inaugurated in 1789. Now to get some of the bigger states, the 13 states to ratify the constitution, they wanted to have um, some additional, excuse me, Abby, Abby, that's our little doggy. She might bark for a minute. Whenever the male lady comes, she likes to say hello and bark. But um, anyways, some of the big states wanted uh, additional rights or restrictions put on the federal government before they agreed to, uh, to ratify the constitution. And so a year or two after the constitution was put forth these 10 amendments, 189 amendments were um, were submitted and they consolidated them down to these 10 provisions that are known as the Bill of Rights, which are the first 10 amendments. Alexander Hamilton uh, wasn't in, in favor of, you know, itemizing our rights because he said, look, there's a danger in making a list of our individual rights because if some of these our rights are left off the list, it might be presumed that they're forfeited or that the government can get involved. And, and we're gonna see that's, that is what has happened in, in certainly most recent years when the constitution has been silent. You know, the, the courts have ruled on abortion or same-sex marriage or um, these kind of things that were really meant to, be, to go back to the states and the people in the states to decide. 
And so let's look at the Bill of Rights. The American Bill of Rights is a legacy from tens of thousands of Englishmen who suffered tortured hangings, beheadings, imprisonment, and being burned alive. Some of these most basic rights of freemen sent forth uh, in the Magna Carta. Some of these rights began to be you know, set forth in, in 1215 in the Petition of Rights saying that you can't quarter troops in, in your homes. And in 1679, the writ of habeas corpus saying that you know you have the right to jury and the English Bill of Rights that talks about freedom of speech. So all of these freedom documents from England, we pulled and used in, in establishing our Bill of Rights. And the founders actually wrote a preamble to the Bill of Rights that no one, seldom anyone even reads or knows about. And really this Bill of Rights to, um, this preamble to the Bill of Rights was a declaration, uh, not necessarily of our rights, but a prohibition against the government. It said, in order to prevent misconstruction or abuse of the federal government's powers, further declaratory and restrictive clauses had have been added. So they wanted to just make sure, bind them down further with the chains of these the constitution and some of these things put in the Bill of Rights. Now our very first freedom, the very first amendment is what? Is the right to have religious liberties. Congress, let's see that next slide. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or oppress or the rights of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. So the framers of the Constitution did not want Congress to get involved in establishing a state religion. Goodness sakes, they just broke away from England. That's our history. We didn't want to belong to the Church of England. So they didn't want Congress to establish a state religion, but they definitely wanted religion to be at the forefront of this nation. Uh, they so they uh, forbade the Congress to uh, uh, they forbade us to uh, Congress to abridge the free exercise of religion. They understood. Look, principle number four in the 5,000 year leap said, without religion, a government of free people that they gave us could not be maintained because the laws upon which they founded this nation was on natural law, godly law. So in order to be able to maintain godly law, they knew that people needed to remain morally strong and virtuous and to elect morally strong and virtuous leaders. And you stay morally strong and virtuous when you have religion in your life. So our founders understood the importance of religion in the American people in maintaining what they were going to give us. They wanted religion to be free, to make it, uh, to make it our own, but they did not intend to have irreligion made into a favored state church. They didn't want irreligion protected. And we're seeing a lot of protections right now in the court in the courts against uh, irreligion, against atheism. And that's not what our founders intended. So there's something I want you to understand, this whole separation of church and state, this phrase that has been bantied around for years and the courts distorted that phrase that was initiated by Thomas Jefferson. When Thomas Jefferson was the president of the United States, and it's important to remember when Thomas Jefferson uh, served in the Virginia legislature, he introduced a bill to have a day of fasting and prayer. 
So some people like to say he wasn't, uh, you know, a spiritual man or he was a godless man or an atheist. Well, he he uh, introduced a bill for a day of fasting and prayer to God. So so, you know, just look at the life that he led in the Jefferson Bible, which he carried around in his pocket to know he was a believer. But when Thomas Jefferson was president of the United States in 1802, he received a letter from a Baptist minister who wrote to him saying that he wanted the federal government to get involved in an argument that Connecticut, the state of Connecticut was having about their official state religion. And Thomas Jefferson wrote back, he said, the constitution in this first amendment has created a wall of separation between the state and, and the church. So what he meant, what Thomas Jefferson meant is that he didn't want the federal government intermeddling in religious matters within the states. It was the state's responsibilities to, to give religion equal treatment in their states for the states to figure that out. Now, 150 years later in uh, Everson versus Board of Education, the Supreme Court quoted that statement from Jefferson, that metaphor saying there should be a separation between church and state. And they said, they said, neither the state nor the federal government can set up a church or pass laws that aid religion or preference one to, to the other. So they added, they, they punished the state, the very thing that Thomas Jefferson wanted the states, our founding fathers wanted the states to determine. The court struck down and said both the Federal government and the states should not intermeddle uh, uh, in religion or, nor give uh, preference to religions. And so they use the courts use this metaphor by Jefferson as an excuse to begin to distort and pull religion out of schools. And you began to see in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, that's exactly what happened. Prayer was pulled out of school, uh, a Bible study was pulled out of school. So Jefferson's wall was once again intended for the federal government. So the Supreme Court's application of this metaphor to the states was completely against the founders' original intent because Jefferson wanted, the founding fathers wanted states to intervene in religious matters. They wanted all religions encouraged in order uh, for them to be able to uh, preserve the moral fiber and tone of the people that which would then preserve the moral fiber and tone of this, this government of the, uh, the people that they had given us. And uh, it would have been impossible if there had been this impenetrable wall between church and state that the courts 150 years later said uh, existed because of this first amendment. And so that's a lot to take in, but I just wanted to give you some history behind where that whole idea that there should be a separation of church and state, that was never what our founding fathers intended. In fact, um, let's see the next slide. The founders in this Northwest Ordinance again in 1787 declared that uh, it, what they wanted taught in schools were not, not only knowledge, but religion and morality. It says that in the, the 1787 Northwest Ordinance, that they wanted religion taught in schools. They wanted morality. And they used the term religion in the broadest sense, meaning basic beliefs in which uh, uh, practically all, man could, um, all mankind could agree upon. Let's see that next slide. 
Franklin, um, uh, Benjamin Franklin uh, talked about, you know, these five points of sound religion that he called it that constituted the American religion or the universal religion. And he said that all sound religions would should prescribe to these basic tenets that there is a creator, that the creator has revealed a moral code which defines right and wrong, and that the creator is going to hold all mankind responsible for the way we treat one another, and that that we will live beyond this life, and that in the next life we will be judged according to how we lived. Now it's interesting that Benjamin Franklin called this the tenets of sound religion, which would 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 possibly imply that he meant that there were going to be unsound religions. And you, I think of an unsound religion today that's being protected is as is atheism. Atheism is considered the fourth largest worldwide religion. And so, you know, if you think of most sound religions today, you know, Christianity or Judaism or a Muslim, they all prescribe to these tenets. Certainly atheism does not though, uh, wokeism, communism, socialism, they all, none of them prescribe. And so I dare say Benjamin Franklin would consider those religions unsound religions. But Samuel Adams, in response to these five uh, tenets, Samuel Adams, we know the father of the American Revolution said, these basic tenets constitute the religion of America. It is the religion of all mankind. John Adams called these tenets the general principles upon which the American civilization was founded. Thomas Jefferson called these basic beliefs the principles upon which God has united us all. And in uh, George Washington's farewell address, he spoke of uh, these religious principles as indispensable supports of good government. There is no security for property or reputation uh, or without them. And then let's see the next quote, Alex de Tocqueville that would come to America just a few decades after we were established. And he wrote that democracy in America, one of the most uh, definitive studies in American culture at that time in our constitution said, let's see that quote. He said, on my arrival, this is about 1830, on my arrival in the United States, the religious aspects of the country was the first thing that struck my attention. And the longer I stayed there, the more I perceived the great political consequences resulting from this new state of things. And then I'm just gonna read a little bit more of that quote. It's right there in the book. Religion, he said, in America takes no direct part in the government of society, but it must be regarded as the first of their political institutions. I am certain that they hold it to be indispensable to the maintenance of the Republican institutions. Isn't that interesting? That was his observation of how religion shaped this land and this culture and the success of this new nation. Okay, I think that's all I wanna say about that First Amendment. Although the second provision of the First Amendment talks about, oh boy, and are we not seeing this now? Congress wanted uh, there to be no abridgment of the freedom of speech or press or the rights to assemble. And we saw that especially during COVID, this cancel culture, that if you said things that were unpopular or against the narrative that this uh, digital not, uh, you know, information was trying to put forth, <laughs> you would be banned, shadow banned, you'd be censored. Moms for America even had problems, uh, you know, uh, being shadow banned and, and having some of our sites taken down. 
And so, you know, the founders really knew that there had to be a few restrictions on freedom of speech. Look, you couldn't have people, you know, uh, libeling or slandering reputations. And so they they wanted these standards to be set forth uh, um, in the states to de determine their standards of decency and morality and safety. And, and so, um, but we, we are seeing uh, the right to assemble. Even in January 6th, I, I told you I was there. It felt like there was a million people there, a lot of people. And it was a peaceful uh, uh, assembly of, of um, you know, people coming together. And it wasn't until we got to the Capitol and there was a few bad eggs. And I don't even think those bad eggs were, were ever there to peacefully assemble because they were armored up like they were going to war with their gas mask and their sticks and their armor and and it was it was the oddest thing uh, you know but it was it was inspiring for me to see all those people there that had come to peacefully assemble and that is a constitutional right not ever to break um, into buildings into shattered glass and and that kind of thing no but to be able you know, to continue to stand up and to push back and to gather and, and you know, to air our grievances. That's a, that's a protected constitutional right. Okay, so let's go to our second amendment. Let's see where we're at here. Okay, the second amendment is the right to bear arms. A well-regulated militia is necessary for the security of a free state and the right of the people to keep and bear arms is, a, is an inalienable right to be able to protect ourselves. The right to bear arms was considered an inalienable right connected with the preservation of liberty and property. It's interesting, um, the numbers are a little off in our book here because uh, it was in 2012. There's over 400 million people now that own firearms. And um, in the nations where leaders want to suppress people by, they start by depriving them of their property and freedom by getting them to become disarmed. Did you know that? That the first thing Hitler did when he came into power was to take everyone's guns away. And the Soviet Union, it was said during the Cold War in the 50s when Khrushchev was uh, the president at the height of the Cold War, he did not... Uh, you know, seek to come into our country because he knew the U.S. citizens were the best armed. So it, it, it serves as a deterrent. Some say that gun control curbs crime, but the statistics do not bear that out. Chicago, which has the strictest gun laws on the books today, has more mass shootings than any U.S. city. Now, how is that to be? Remember, when tyranny uh, begins, they start by disarming the people. That is why it's so important we never give up this right. Just think of a movie theater. So many movies I go to uh, nowadays, it says as you enter the theater that no guns are allowed. And I think we're just all sitting there like lame ducks. I mean, if someone wants to commit a, you know, a shooting, that's probably the best place to go where it's advertised no guns are allowed because we are particularly unsafe and vulnerable and have no way of protecting ourselves. And so, you know, it seems like, oh, this, but even this last month, I read that there have been over 30 mass shootings. Now, a mass shooting is considered four or more people. You think of what happened in Nashville this month and Louisville, Kentucky and something in Alabama. And I feel like there was something last week. 
Now, enemies of freedom will, will like to say, oh, we're having all these mass shootings because of the guns. Now, I dare say, I think it's because of the godlessness that is, is pervasive now and this secular curriculum that we taught our children. And we're seeing the mental health crisis of our young people at, at rates that we've never seen before uh, as we've just you know, in infiltrating them with these ideas of wokeism, just shoving it down their, their minds and isolating them during COVID, the isolation, and kids are not doing well. So I dare say, I don't think it's the guns that is the problem. I think it's the godlessness. And we saw when we began to pull God out of our schools, that the scores, when we no longer could talk about God, read Bible uh, stories, start the day with prayer, the scores, we were always at the top, our scores have steadily, we're at the bottom of first world countries in many of, of um, educational testing. And I believe it's because we take, we need God in our schools to allow us to, our children to have the spirit to do well, to know who to turn to when they're having a, a, a nervous about a test. And so it's my personal opinion, it's our, the, the secularism of this nation that's become the new religion that is, you know, the, the means of, you know, the um, moral decay, not too many guns. So anyways, that is our founding fathers and, and all these principles are all woven. Principle number 24 uh, says you, uh, a free country cannot stay strong. A free country cannot exist unless they stay strong. They meant that we need to have the militarily strength and we need to be able to to defend ourselves personally within our homes okay uh slide uh amendment number three three four five six seven eight talk about you know uh protecting the rights of the accused now our founding fathers were especially sensitive uh, to the abuses that were going on by england and so the third amendment just basically says that soldiers can't come in and take over your home in war or peace you can't you're not, you can't be forced to quarter soldiers in your home. Not really a problem today. Amendment, let's see the next slide. Amendment four talks about unreasonable searches and seizures. This was going on, you know, to the extreme during colonial early American times. And, and so it just says that, you know, they can't have unreasonable searches or seizures without uh, warrants. Uh, amendment number five talks about, again, the rights of the accused, that, that you don't have to testify against yourself, and that you must go through a proper due process of law. This phrase from the Fifth Amendment, due process of law, has been used to justify um, uh, gay marriage. This is what the Supreme Court used in 2013. Due process of law, what our founders meant is that you have to go through the proper procedures of being indicted, having a trial, having witnesses, having an attorney before you can found, be found guilty. Uh, I think how the Supreme Court twisted it is the due process of law, meaning that look, you should be able to go down to the state house and file a petition to get married. Uh, to whoever you want and have your due process, uh, not just to say it's unconstitutional, I can't do this. And so this is how they twisted that due process of law clause. The Sixth Amendment talks about how you have a right to a fair and speedy trial by an impartial jury and that, you know, that you can meet your accusers and that um, you can, uh, um, you have to be informed about the nature of what you're being accused about. And so 
you, you know, you can see why our founding fathers were sensitive about these kind of things, because what they had seen was, you know, the English government could throw you in jail, put you in the dungeon, and you'd stay there the rest of your life. So they wanted to make sure there were enough protections against those that were being accused or wrong. The Seventh Amendment talks about this right to a jury uh, in a civil case, that means maybe a contractual disagreements if you wanted to sue someone because they're not living up to their um, contract. And then the Eighth Amendment, let's see that next slide, talks about no excessive bails or fines or cruel and or unusual punishment. I just watched The Count of Monte Cristo, Cristo that movie. And so they wanted to make sure that, you know, you couldn't be thrown into jail and forgotten about for 20 years, that there had to be some protections there for the accused. Okay, lastly, amendments nine and 10. Let's see this next slide. I, I, I mean, I, I think I think they say that this is the most widely violated provisions of the Constitution, nine and 10. The Ninth Amendment says that uh, the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. So that's basically what it says is that citizens can claim all the rights that belong to them. And, and it's kind of a, a, a catch-all phrase that, uh, that they can be protected by all other rights that might not be enumerated in the constitution, okay? That if it's not spelled out in the constitution, it's for the people to figure it out, that they can't be denied those rights that aren't addressed in the constitution, but that they are to go back to the respective states. And it says that in the 10th amendment here, it places the power back to the states and the, and the people, that the power is not delegated to the United States by the constitution nor prohibited by it to the states are reserved for the states and respectively the people to figure out. The amendments were designed to fix chains on the constitution, all right? And so they specifically spelled out assigned duties to the federal government. Remember those six areas for the president, those 20 enumerated powers for Congress and the, the, uh, and the, the courts were just to interpret and guard, you know, the existing intent of, of the laws. And, and that everything else was to be settled back, uh, you know, by the people. Thomas Jefferson um, said, I believe the states can best govern our internal concerns and the general government are external. So what were some of the general things? Well, provide for the common defense, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the overall well-being of this nation. That's what he meant by external um, uh, issues that the federal government were to be involved in. So principle 19 sums amendments nine and 10 up by saying that only limited and carefully defined powers were put forth, delegated to the government, all others were to be retained by the people. So out of the 189 proposed amendments that were submitted to Congress, they ratified these 10, these first 10. So you can see amendments one and two and nine and 10 are very pertinent to us today. We need to be able to explain amendments one and two, that's our religious liberties, that's the right to bear arms, and nine and 10, the whole idea that the government was supposed to have limited and carefully defined powers and everything else was to be determined at the state level by the people of that state, okay? So the founding fathers didn't want the federal government to serve as a watchdog over the states. They wanted the states 
to be responsible for the rights of the people. And if the states failed to function in protecting the rights of its citizens, that the founders wanted the pressure of the citizenry to build up upon the state leaders and force correction within the confines of the state without the intervention of the federal government. Right? Are you are you understanding the intent here uh, of the founders uh, with these seven articles and these ten amendments? Because what we're going to begin to get next week are amendments that are going to disrupt uh, uh, what our founders gave us and what made us so incredibly strong in the light on the hill uh, the first hundred years uh, as a nation. So, and, and look, we saw this with women and the vote. So we had a constitutional um, amendment put forth in 1920 that gave women the right to vote. Well, 20 states already had women voting because the women rose up and said, we want to vote. And, and that's a constitutional right for the states to determine who can vote. And so they voted to have women, you know, be able to participate. And, and um, same with slavery. Uh, during the early history of our of our country, you need to understand most states were not living under slavery anymore, except a few of the big southern states. And so, you know, the, the founders hoped by abolishing the importation of slavery 20 years after the Constitution was put forth, that it would just die out, right, instead of the government. And, and, and I'll, I'll explain why it didn't die out when we get to um, amendments next week. 13, 14, and 15, where they had to actually abolish it, but it had to do with cotton gin. And, and I'll explain that. But, but, but typically, you know, they wanted the states and the people in the states to pressure, you know, the government and leaders to, to dictate how they wanted things run in their state, not uh, Washington, D.C., 3,000 miles away to get their hands involved. So some say that anything more or less than what our founding fathers gave us would come of evil, okay? And we will see if that's the case as we study Amendments 11 through 27 next week. Now, mamas, I want to really encourage you to go back and to review this lesson over the next 48 hours because they say if you will go back and review something you've learned within 48 hours, you increase your retention by 50%. So definitely get your little one page and review that, all right? And then just go back and reread the sections that we covered today so you can begin to kind of connect the dots. Also, so many of the principles in the, the articles and the 10 amendments are a part of these 28 principles that, that um, the founders used to establish our land. And we've got these 12 classes from the 5,000 yearly curriculum. How this be your summer study, mamas, in July and August? Go through and listen to those 12 classes and you'll see how these principles of liberty are so woven in to uh, the seven articles and the 10 amendments. And then of course the catechism, uh, uh, this is how they taught children the constitution in the 1800s, it was used the Socratic method. And if you just read a little one page of questions uh, and reviewed them each uh, day with yourself or with your children or uh, over breakfast or something, that would be one way to kind of keep fresh the things that we learned about the Constitution. Let's see the next um, slide. There's a wonderful book I've used for years, How to Teach the 27 Amendments to My Children. And each amendment has a little, uh, a little colored page and, and just like a few line explanation of what that amendment means. And this is how I taught my children. Uh, you know, we would take one amendment 
her week and we would just flesh it out and learn everything we could. And oftentimes I just pulled my, this, you know, my little book and I would just teach them from my book. In addition to this enabling the people, that's how I would teach uh, my children about the 27 amendments. So make sure mamas, you get your um, uh, seminar booklet number three, because we'll be starting that in two weeks and watch, oh, if you will, the tell of two constitutions, that little eight and nine minute YouTube video that helps you to understand the constitution that our founders gave us and how things began to change. It would really help you understand our class next week, how the amendments, particularly that came in the 1900s, how it disrupted uh, you know, what our founding fathers gave us. Okay, that ends. Whew, I always feel like we have to just get a glass of water after we finish our classes on the Constitution because you're kind of heavy duty. Um, it's a real uh, academic pursuit. Your brain has to be kind of on point. Got to bring your A, your A game when we uh, learn the Constitution in four hours, uh, an hour a week. Thank you.